Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Let us pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart, may the words and thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when is the last time, by a show of hands, that you invited someone uh, home for a meal? When was the last time you did this? Any, anybody invite anybody this week to your house for a meal? Raise your hands. All right. Who was it? Yell it out. Who was it? Friends? Family? Friends. No strangers? Why did you invite them? What was the occasion? And during that meal, what conversations emerged? Was the meal one of celebration? Was it one of relaxation with sharing life, eating, drinking, and laughter? Or was it filled with serious discussion that caused ulcers and all other types of intestinal problems? In Community Growth, a book written by... uh, a dear friend who just passed this year, Jean Vanier, he writes, Mills are daily celebrations where we meet each other around the same table to be nourished and share in joy. They are a particular delight for the body and senses. A meal is an important community event which has to be well prepared and fully lived. It is a time when the joy of eating and drinking well merge with the joy of meeting. A marvelous human moment. In so many ways, meals are another way of reiterating to one another, you matter, I matter, and it matters that we are here together. In our gospel passage this morning, Luke tells us about a meal that Jesus was invited to. He tells us who invited Jesus and what happens at this meal. But it's important to note that this is not the first meal Jesus was invited to. In fact, throughout the Gospels, meals are central to Jesus' ministry, where Jesus is present. For instance, our passage this morning, Luke 14, is the third dinner invitation that Jesus accepts from a Pharisee. But before we jump into Luke 14 and this table setting, let's look at two other meals where Jesus is invited. I I hope this will help us make sense, make meaning of what's actually going on here in Luke 14. So the first dinner invitation that Jesus accepts is actually found over in Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. And this is where a sinful woman interrupts the meal to weep over, anoint, and kiss Jesus' body. Like most meals where Jesus is is present, This particular dinner invitation meal setting gives us a glimpse of Jesus as both guest of and host to sinners. In Luke 7, Jesus is guest of a Pharisee named Simon who questions Jesus in his heart saying, if this man truly were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. 
And it is precisely in the way Jesus responds to Simon the Pharisee that he reveals what it means to be the true host, to welcome and receive the uninvited guest, bringing people together. It's at this meal, Jesus as guest shows that he is the true host, particularly to this sinful woman, giving her place in a religious and a social world that actually denied her of that very place. And the way Jesus gives her place in this world is by affirming her faith and forgiving her of her sins. In essence, Jesus gives this sinful woman place in her world by assuring her of her place in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here in Luke 7, this sinful woman's faith is revealed to us and to those around her through her poverty of being. Her faith is revealed through her brokenness, through her tears, her vulnerability, and her affliction. A sinful woman, religiously excluded and socially humbled, blesses the Son of God with anointing and the sign of peace, and in return receives blessing and peace. For the one who was unclean was made clean. The sinful woman is forgiven. The one who had been brought low has now been exalted. Amen? The second dinner invitation Jesus accepts is found in Luke 11, verses 37 through 43. In Luke 11, Jesus is in the home of another Pharisee. And in what seems like a matter of seconds, maybe a minute or two, Jesus begins to accuse the Pharisees of neglecting the justice and love of God. He calls them foolish. He exposes their greed, their wickedness, their pride. And then he pronounces judgment over them all five times, saying, Woe to you. And what was the cause for this reaction? Well, it was because a Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. What a guest, right? At this point, I would think that all future invitations to dinner for Jesus are pretty much off the table, right? Now, maybe some of you have stories similar to this one. Stories of people who invited you or people that you invited into your homes that were ill-mannered, maybe a little socially awkward, or possibly even offensive. Maybe it was that neighbor who kept being obnoxious, or the neighbor's child who, was not, who not only ran into your house with muddy shoes, but continued to run around your house anxiously without paying attention until they slammed into the storm door on the way out because they didn't see the glass, almost causing a visit to the hospital for their family and an insurance claim for your family. Or maybe it was that one community group member who just can't seem to hold a glass of wine every time they show up to your house. True stories. (laughs) And you know who you are. (laughs) What is it that would offend you when it comes to guests in your homes or your lives? You know, by any standard of etiquette, Jesus seemingly lacks social awareness here. 
seemingly on the surface is impolite and just bad-mannered. Now, I use the term seemingly here because at the end of the day, there's just more than meets the eyes regarding Jesus' words and deeds. In both Luke 7 and Luke 11, there are religious leaders who are silently questioning Jesus in light of their understanding of Israel's purity boundaries. In the first invitation, the religious leader just can't conceive of the possibility that Jesus is who he claims to be. For if he actually was a prophet, then there's no way he would allow a sinner to touch him. In the second invitation, the religious leader questions what he perceives as Jesus' lack of understanding or his unwillingness to submit to social norms regarding cleanliness, washing your hands before dinner. So just a word to all the children, all the youth, and all the dirty dads here in the room. If your parents or your spouse ask or remind you to wash your hands before a meal, just do it. You're not Jesus, and she or they are not Pharisees. Just wash your hands. So as we transition now into our actual gospel passage this morning, Luke 14, verse 1 and 7 through 14, let me just provide a little bit of context to why religious leaders of Jesus' day feared having contact with those considered unclean, those Israel purity boundaries I just alluded to. Because at the heart of Jesus' message lies those who are believed to be socially and religiously unclean, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those who are disabled. In the Old Testament, there is a tension between the call to be holy and the call to be hospitable. That is, God commands his people to be both holy and hospitable But at times, these two commands, these two pursuits are held in tension. Throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly commands his people to provide hospitality to strangers, to foreigners, to the others. Just a glossary reading of the Old Testament will show you this. Yet there is much in the Old Testament that also emphasizes how God's people are not to entertain their neighbors or to have contact with those who are unclean, such as all the purity rituals set out in the Torah, Levitical law, and all that stuff about the conquest that we don't really like. It's all about cleanliness and holiness. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are times where it seems as though Israel is in constant danger of being overwhelmed by pollution and sin, and she must constantly keep herself clean and holy in order to maintain herself as holy among the nations. This is the reason we see the religious leaders in Luke 7, in Luke 11, in Luke 14 questioning Jesus, rebuking Jesus in their hearts as well as publicly. In so many ways, the Pharisees in Luke's Gospels were just pursuing holiness amid this tension between being holy and being hospitable. Though often erring on the side of holiness, 
over and against God's call to be hospitable, even if it meant excluding those within their midst. At this point, I think it's important to just say that Jesus does not resolve this tension at all between hospitality and holiness that is present in the, New Test- in the Old Testament. But he does something interesting. He relates these two commands to be holy and to be hospitable, hospitable in a particular way. He relates them by converting their relations. So let me explain. Instead of having to be set apart from or to exclude sinners and pagans in order to maintain holiness, it is in Jesus' hospitality to pagans, to sinners, and those considered unclean that holiness is made known. Jesus turns the issue of holiness inside out and upside down. Instead of sin imperfecting uh, and impurity infecting Jesus, Jesus' purity, Jesus' righteousness infects sinners. It's Jesus' purity and righteousness that infects the Gentiles and those who are considered socially and religiously unclean and impure. Jesus is challenging their perception as well as our own understanding of holiness as those things and people we say have nothing to do with them. So what is holiness in light of the kingdom that Jesus embodies and teaches here in the gospel and throughout the other gospels? In the teaching and practice of Jesus, holiness, not uncleanliness, was understood to be contagious. So remember when we thought that Jesus looked kind of socially unaware? What we actually discover is that he did not lack social awareness. We discover that he was not impolite or ill-mannered, but that in and through his ministry, hospitality becomes the means of holiness. What we discover here in Luke's gospel is that Jesus reconfigures Israel's purity boundaries, which his hospitality represents, all of which signifies the heart of the Father's mission earlier in Luke, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the incarcerated, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. The Father's mission is to those who we typically socially exclude from us. At each of these meals, Jesus reveals the redeeming love of God by including sinners in the community of salvation. And lying at the heart of Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees in these passages is an actual invitation to them to his banquet, if only they are willing to acknowledge their own poverty of being and spiritual blindness. This is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. In today's passage, Luke 14, we find Jesus at a dinner in a Pharisee's home 
where he performs a miracle. He tells a series of parables exposing the pride of all who are present. And then he turns the tables in humility, welcome, and grace, where he lays out the conditions by which any and all will be able to participate in the community of God's kingdom. At this meal in Luke 14, Jesus observes how the guests are choosing the places of honor in verse 7. And his response is twofold. First, he tells a parable where he discourages his listeners from seeking the most prestigious seat at the table in order to avoid what? The humiliating situation of being displaced by someone of greater importance, verse 8. Instead, Jesus says, you are to take the lowest place so that they might be elevated to a more honorable place, a more honorable seat by the host, verse 10. And then Jesus summarizes this kind of parable with the well-known saying, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It is here that we catch a glimpse of the social matrix of the first century life on full display. Yet, pride and privilege and status are issues in any culture, and ours is no exception. In our world, status gives rise to power, and power often results in pride. And Jesus regards pride as destructive to our spiritual health. As the old saying goes, recognition, it runs from those who demand it. And this is true at the deepest level in the matter of salvation. For anyone who believes they qualify for God's salvation will discover that by this very fact, they do not. To claim God's approval as a right on the grounds of your position of your reputation, or even your own good opinion of yourself is a positive disqualification. So I have a question for us. What are the things we presume that give us any right? The right to be who you are. The right to live where you live. The right to be here, to receive forgiveness of sins or to receive Holy Communion. Like life itself, all of these are gifts. The idea that I must be accepted because I'm ordained, I lead in a church, I go to church, I serve on a servant team, or I tithe regularly, is completely misguided. The whole I am, so I must be is nothing but self-exaltation. It's the very thing that keeps us far from God in the gift freely offered to us in Christ Jesus. There is no entry through the narrow door for the one who is weighed down with status symbols and a sense of their own importance. In fact, Jesus says it harder. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus' disciples are marked by humility. 
So how we operate socially and whom we befriend, whom we invite into our homes and our lives, indicate the type of persons we are. True humility, according to Jesus, means ignoring rank, status, and class as a marker of invitation and friendship. Because friends can be made anywhere. And while this lesson is a hard one, it shows that Jesus regards humility as fundamental to Christian discipleship. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, Jesus takes no issue with bestowing honor on those deserving of honor. What he's against is the use of prestige, privilege, and power for self-promotion. In other words, honor is awarded. It's not seized. And this is the opposite of how social media is usually used, right? I mean, social media is a perfect example of people seeking to gain likes and honor or to demonstrate some privilege of outer beauty or attraction or to express what little power we think we have in bite-sized tweets. Most of our social media is self-centered, it's self-absorbed, and it's self-congratulatory. It's the virtual edition of Luke 14, a contest for the best seats at the table prepared for those consumed with the game of self-ambition. God honors the humble. And the highway of humility leads to the gate of heaven. Those who are truly humble are those who acknowledge their desperate need for God, not any right to blessing. God honors the humble. In the next section of our passage, verses 12 through 14, Jesus expands the picture of humility by encouraging and exhorting this host that his guest list should not be limited to those within and above his social class. But his guest list should include the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And what Jesus is saying here is this, that who you eat with matters. It wasn't until middle school that I noticed the effects of social status in the shaping of my friendships. You know, before middle school, it was all bliss. It seemed like everyone in my class, from preschool to sixth grade, were just the closest friends. But then something unexpected happened. All of a sudden, the tables I had set at for years with so many different friends became objects of social status. There were tables for the cool kids, tables for the not-so-cool kids. And then by the end of eighth grade, going into high school, the cafeteria was divided by race, class, gender, wealth, and popularity. And over the course of just three years, I learned that where I sat and who I ate with matters. I learned not to sit with the certain groups of people because if I did, I would then be associated with those who were poorer than the rest, those who were retarded, those who were troublemakers, 
the unpopular, or even be risked called a cracker. Sadly, I gave in to the game of middle school, high school, cafeteria politics because I didn't want my image to be ruined. So I stuck with my group, seduced by the illusion that the good life comes from outside us, from the things we possessed, the power of our group, and not from within, from the inner sanctuary of our very being. How quickly we humans fall into illusion. The illusion that we are the center of the universe, or the opposite extreme, the illusion that we are nobody. And how easily it is to imagine that if we are part of this or that group or gain more money, all will be well. We can all be seduced by these illusions. And when we do, we begin to lose our true selves. We end up falling into a type of paralysis of fear that leads to anger and despair or pride and self-exaltation. My dear friend Jean Vanier writes, our fundamental problem is our consciousness of death. I'm not just talking about in so many years' time I'll be buried. I'm talking about accepting weakness, growing old, growing into nothingness. Maybe the greatest fear we have is not being considered worthy, of not being respected. So the fear of death, of being pushed aside, of not being wanted, is very fundamental. So what do we fear? What are you most afraid of? Dementia? Alzheimer's? Are you afraid of ending up on Jesus' guest list? Blind, crippled, poor, disabled? Is it fear of being put aside? Is it fear of not being admired? Maybe it's just the fear of not being in control. I believe fear is at the heart of Luke 14. This is why the guests are conniving for the best seats. They fear not being close to the host. It is also why the host has a particular guest list that differs drastically from Jesus's. His greatest fear was losing honor. You see, Jesus's words are countercultural then and now. He turns the very fabric of the honor and status structure of the ancient world and our world upside down by exhorting the host not to invite friends or family or the rich to mills, since they are able to repay with a corresponding invitation. Instead, Jesus calls for inclusion of those who cannot return the invitation. So how do we do this in our culture? You know, for some of us, our first impulse right now will be to go find someone to help to go find someone who needs help, who cannot repay. And I just want to gracefully challenge this impulse and say, don't do this. You heard me right. Don't do this until you can, not because you can, 
but from a place of genuine humility. First, pray. Ask God for the gift and spirit of humility. It's a great place to start. Second, pray. Ask God for the gift of wisdom and how to befriend befriend people who are not like you. Third, pray. Ask God for the gift of opportunity to befriend someone not like you. Fourth, pray. Prayerfully seek out someone not like you. Someone you can invest time just being with and present for. Prayerfully seek out somebody who is lonely. Maybe go and visit an elderly person who has no friends or family and just seek to be with and present for them more than doing things for them. And when you do find yourself doing things for them, fifth, pray. Return to prayer one for humility. And if you're tempted to say, but that's nothing, well, it is nothing. But it's also everything. It always begins with small things. And if you think about it, it all began in Bethlehem. And that was pretty small. So why the inclusion of those who cannot return the invitation? Because this is the way of God. You nor I nor anyone can ever repay what God offers to us in Jesus Christ. Hospitality gives us the opportunity to understand God's perspective toward us. Genuine hospitality is given, period. It is not exchanged. It is not contractual. It is given. Throughout his ministry, Jesus puts an end to the idea that social repayment and repayment should govern life in God's kingdom community. His promise is that God will repay such hospitality at the resurrection of the righteous. By turning the social norms of his day upside down, Jesus witnesses to the kingdom reversal that we find throughout the Gospels, where God brings down rulers from their throne and lifts up the humble, where the poor will be blessed and the hungry will be satisfied. Those who weep will laugh. Those who are excluded will not only be included, but actually belong. And those rejected, accepted. According to Jesus, the kingdom of God is made up of those in whom such kingdom is hidden. The poor, the diseased, the disabled, and marginalized. For this is the mystery of the gospel. Jesus did not come to serve the poor. He became the life of Christ reminds us that the demand to be normal can be tyranny to ourselves it can be tyranny to others unless we understand 
that the normal condition of our being together is that we are all different. If the church is to be a good community, we must be one that has convictions to see that we would not be whole without the other being different from us. To live in this way will require taking Jesus at his word. To live in this way will require faithful resistance to social expectations that value those of high status in relation to the good life. To live in this way will require humility. To live in this way will require life together with the poor, with the diseased, with the disabled, with the marginalized, in a life where these bodies are considered indispensable and thus honored among us. Jesus is clear that true holiness is only made possible in and through hospitality that is genuine, hospitality that cannot be repaid. For in Jesus, humility and hospitality are the means of holiness. And I'll leave you with this. Jesus says, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.